Welcome along to 98 Not Out. If you are listening on the podcast, make sure you are subscribed. It doesn't cost anything. Uh, and tell your friends, spread the word. We want to get to as many people as possible because the content is so good. Today, we're talking to Don Topley, who's going to give us his diary of the India World Cup. Welcome along. Now, if you've read all the headlines, you'll have seen the big news that Topley has returned early from India. No, not Reese. Don. He's back. Uh, he's given up the 40 degree heat to come back to wind, rain, floods and autumn leaves. Welcome home, Mr. Topley. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you, Darren. Uh, nice to join you. But I kind of wish it was better circumstances you're right I did come home slightly early that's right let's talk about uh, India you've uh, for, for those that don't follow Don on social media and I strongly suggest you do on Twitter Facebook uh, and Instagram um, he's been giving a very vivid and colorful account of his time spent in India following the games at the World Cup the one thing you can't convey through any kind of media, though, Don, is the physicality of visiting India. It really is a, an onslaught to the senses, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, I mean, I've been very honoured over a good number of years that, that I've taken tours abroad. And I really am a Tommy tourist. I love scratching the surface talking to taxi drivers that's the best knowledge in town um you know it's great it's a great opportunity in every state and every ground and every city i visited uh, in my trip uh, following england and in particular reese in the uh, world cup in india well it was fantastically interesting and um you know i I, I, I don't miss a red bus. I just enjoy traveling around, scratching the service, going out of my way, getting up early and going sampling the, the local day as, as the best I could describe it. Did you ever play out there in your playing days? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. The nearest I got was Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is incredibly different to India. Yeah. India really is a very hard place to tour. And you're probably thinking, what do you mean hard? Well, of course, there's the temperatures, there's the uncomfortableness, there's uh, humidity. Um, the surfaces are very different. I mean, you know, before we get onto the cricket, let's be brutally honest. We've never done very well touring India, be it red ball, white ball, or either, any other colored ball. We, it's a very hard place to tour regarding the cricket, regarding the food sometimes, regarding the atmosphere, regarding the pollution. I mean, Delhi, um, a friend of mine, a friend of ours, um, George DeBell, good, good friend, he had an app on his phone and it gave you the pollution level. Maybe in Suffolk here, we might be suffering about two, doesn't really register. Maybe in London with the carbon monoxide and things like that, it might be 25. But George on his app had, both in Delhi and in Mumbai, honestly, the maximum it goes to is 500. 
the air quality. Good God. And it goes a maximum on his uh, app, and it said 500. When it says over 400, it suggests it's extremely dangerous. Um, it was a little bit, little bit similar in Mumbai, but locally they have a sort of, not a standing joke, but they have a, an off-the-cuff comment that in Delhi, if you spend a day in Delhi, and don't forget two teams recently, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, cancelled training because of the air quality. That's right. Some suggest, some suggest being in Delhi is like smoking 80 cigarettes a day. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Mumbai is not so bad. It's only 50. <laughs> we need to send Sadiq Khan out there to impose a ULE zone. Yeah, well... I mean, there will be some who say, is it right that cricketers have to play in those conditions? Is it exactly. health and safety, risk assessment and things like that? But listen, I'm, that, that's one small area. The food, the travel. I mean, you know, traveling around in India, basically everybody hoots, whether you're a tuk-tuk, an Uber, a lorry, a bus, or even really, dare I say it, um, a rickshaw. Basically, the, the hooting is telling you you're coming through. And if you're bigger, don't get in the way. <laughs> Someone was telling me that um, they were visiting India for the World Cup for the first time in, in a long time um, and were mightily impressed at how the trains have improved. I think we've all got yes. visions of uh, Indian trains with packed to the rafters and people sat on the roof and everything, but... No longer the case. Air-conditioned, sleek, high-speed units tearing across the country. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, investment. I, I certainly sense from this uh, the Prime Minister Modi, not just a cricket ground, but uh, I think in some cities the buses are going green or electric. Um, but, you know, there's an abundance of labour. We obviously know why by the sheer population, but there's still a fair bit of litter around, which is always sad to see. Yeah. But it's a great place to tour. And every state and every city is um, very, very different in its own individual way. Now, I saw you post quite a few mouth-watering pictures of local cuisine. Um, any yeah. particular favourites that you came across? Uh, I, I love breakfast. I often had a, an Indian breakfast. Uh, it could be uh, a masala dosa. It could be a paratha with um, some curd, uh, which is common up in the northern part of Indi India. Uh, the breads are just absolutely fantastic. They traditionally, I think it's right in saying they don't use much yeast because in India, you don't need to save bread or enjoy a longer duration for the, uh, for the bread to be available. Basically in India, they cook bread to it immediately eat so there's no yeast so it does taste rather different and i really enjoyed the breads probably spent more time eating vegetable curries i, I do they they have a lot of meat on the bone um, the meat probably isn't quite similar to this country but when you get to luck now uh, where england played india we went up there for three or four days let me tell you that is famous for its meat and things like the lamb kebabs chicken tandoori chicken were unbelievably good so i often stood stood with or stayed with um vegetable curries everywhere and 
and bread. And then, but in Lucknow, you've got to have the, the lamb kebabs that were to die for. You know what Lucknow is also famous for? It's the birthplace of Cliff Richard. Yes, I did read that, and one of the other journalists mentioned that. It, yeah, absolutely. Lucknow uh, was, a, well, the game against India was played at the Akana Stadium. And if I said that's Lucknow, it's actually probably 20, 30 Ks outside of Lucknow. And it's a brand new city, Akana. And uh, it, it's, you could envisage that being a little bit like Dubai in a few years' time, with a fantastic stadium and the atmosphere actually at that stadium when there were 55,000 inside that brand new stadium. It, it, was, it was unbelievable. I'd have, I'd have given my right arm to play in a game like that. You know, For some people, it turns, turns you on. And for some other people, perhaps they get a little scared when you play in such a gladiatorial atmosphere that was the Akana Stadium against India. As the tournament got underway, there was a lot of noise over here about the sparse attendances. Yeah. Um, what was your experience of that? Yeah, well, the first game, we, we I flew to Abu Dhabi and then on to Ahmedabad. But uh, sadly for me, I lost my case for a few days. So the red I case. To, yeah, that red case has served me well for nigh on 30 years, I suppose. And there was once a pair, but uh, Julia lost hers and I've kept mine. And it kept going, but uh, sadly, it, it not only disappeared for a couple of days, it broke. So oh. I had to buy a new one. But um, it was, a you know... I've met a bad has improved. I think England played test matches there back in about 2002, maybe 2011. And it probably wasn't a very nice town at the time, but a lot of investments taken place, house rebuilding, um, metros and things like that, better railways, better um, public facilities. It, it's, it's a nice, nice big city today. Uh, and of course, um, for some who don't know, it's a dry state, Gujarati, which uh, celebrates um, Mahatma Gandhi, um, is a dry state. So there's no alcohol. And in fact, you get all your bags checked and x-rayed as you enter not just the uh, uh, airport, but also every hotel you visit. So there's no alcohol around. And I think, you know, we by, by day five, we could have done with a beer, especially <laughs> after the game against New Zealand, which was um, a very sad game. I think they, well, we got a lot of things wrong. We got the team wrong um, and we didn't bowl very well. We didn't bat very well. And we looked rather timid. We looked a little bit like rabbits in the headlights. Maybe we were nervous about playing that very first game. But unfortunately... It almost set a precedent as uh, we we played poorly perpetually. Yeah, tournament cricket is all about that. If you get the devil inside your head uh, or the monkey on your back, I'll use as many um, yeah. comparisons as you want. But um, it's all about mindset. I mean, if you get on a winning streak, it's unbreakable, as we're seeing with India. But I think with England, there's a lot of criticism here, very heavy, heavy criticism in the press about England's performance and... Was it preparation? Was it team selection? Is this side too old? Um, do you think from, from what you've seen, and obviously you're quite close to the squad and in, in the run-up to it, were there, 
were there mistakes that were made or is it just a case of India's a tough place to go? Well, certainly India's a tough place to go and play. And our history and our, our, our results over the years, we it's not great. So, listen, we were world champions and we are world champions still, actually. Double world champions. But we're going to relinquish this crown. But it's a hard place to, to tour firstly. And then it's a, it's a perfect storm because we had a lot of inconvenience and we had a lot of uh, poor decisions and difficult decisions in the lead up to uh, the tour, the World Cup. Um, there was the Roy factor. Was it Brooke? Should a half-fit Stokes go? Um, and then you've got to understand form came into it. Um, confidence as well. That's a vicious circle. Lack of form, lack of confidence, lack of confidence, lack of form. Vicious circle. And then, to be honest, perhaps a few players. This, for them, was a tour too far. Perhaps one or two have got a little old. Um, and that has shown one or two weren't fit. That's been become apparent. And then the form, it's been a perfect storm and some difficult or wrong decisions at the toss. And I think Joss Butler's held his hand up and it's been a difficult tour for him. He's been not just out of form, but made some decisions. The, the one thing I will say, um, and I have sympathy for Mott, because I think in these days and times of modern day cricket, we don't have too many Churchillian type old coaches that thump tables and look you in the eye and prod you and say um, you were crap today and I think coaching coaches and coaching today is very different and maybe maybe the player does have a significant power and it and you know they they like coaches to be your best friend i'm not always sure that that's correct i really don't lay the full blame at all at mott and i think you'll find the players do and i think the players must take full responsibility i think they've let their coaches and uh, perhaps a few teammates down as well and a lot of traveling supporters as well um, you yourself, you yourself have experience of coaching at a World Cup, uh, the Zimbabwe team in nineteen ninety two, um, a generation ago in terms of cricketing and venues and all the rest of it, uh, and of course Zimbabwe was right at the fore in two thousand and three when Nasu Hussain found himself caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, what what was it like for you back in those days, uh, being involved at that level? Um, I was very lucky. It was quite a talented bunch of uh, lads, probably lacked discipline on the park. That was probably the area that I tried to change. 50 over cricket is a long game. And I took them to the Australasia World Cup. That was Zimbabwe. And of course, Zimbabwe beat England. That's probably going to be a Christmas quiz question, you know. Which Englishmen have beaten England over the years? It'll be me. Silverwood, don't forget, he did very well for Sri Lanka just recently. Yes, he did. And it's to be Jonathan Trott. There we are. There's there's a quiz question, won't it? Won't it mm. be that? Yeah. But it was a great honour. And um, Jonathan Trott's done well. Chris Silverwood has done quite well. But 
Um, we found a few games that have been where teams have been victors and thump sides. And I think that is, in essence, for me, that the modern day cricketer is um, still excited by T20 and teams go hard, harder or even harder. So we've seen quite a number of fixtures where teams have been bowled out in 30 overs or 35 overs. And there's been some horrendous, huge defeats. And I think, you know, that that is part and partial of today's cricket for me. People have forgotten how to bat 50 overs. Um, but as I, as, as I go back, I think you, you mentioned it, there were some poor decisions at tosses. You know, old-fashioned values are still important. And one of those old-fashioned values in cricket is in countries like India and indeed Sri Lanka, hey, if you get first use of the wicket, normally it's pretty good. And if you bat well and get 300 and watch the opposition wilt and die in the field, mm. hey, that's not a bad tactic. I think, for me, modern-day cricket is becoming overcomplicated. And I think with these matchups and these kind of things, look, I, I, I'd rather... I'm a bit of a dinosaur, but I'd go back to a couple of the, what I call the old tried and tr trusted sort of tactics of yesteryear. Let's go and get a big score, watch them wilt and die in the field, and let's see them chase scoreboard pressure. Every time the England side struggles, and we had this, let's wind the clock back nearly two years to that uh, drubbing down under, um, under Joe Root's England followed up by a, a miserable series in the West Indies um, where somebody was skipping about on a rock and stubbed their toe. Um, but at that time, every, <laughs> you can tell us about that in a second. Um, but every time England struggle, whatever the format, all guns get trained on domestic cricket, the county set up. Yeah. And in this case, the 100. And because we haven't done well at 50 over cricket, there's been a lot of people saying, well, that's what happens if you relegate the Royal London Cup to a second 11 development side competition. You don't really prioritise it. Um, you push the 100 front and centre at the height of the summer. I don't really want to get into a debate about the 100, but yeah. um, I don't necessarily think, and I'd be keen to hear your views on this, that yeah. county cricket should be taking the blame for any of this. I can see why you, in this in this chat we're having, or other people would want to bring the 100 into it and domestic cricket, too simplistic for me, far too simplistic. Um, it, we could have done with a bit more practice in India, in Indian conditions. If you remember, the squad arrived in uh, Gurawati, which is toward Assam. That's near towards Bangladesh, and they... They played two practice games and both were affected by rain. Well, one didn't happen and the other one got affected by rain. And prior to that, we were playing New Zealand in a four match, was it ODI series? And then uh, they relegated the uh, Ireland series to a second, England second 11. We probably, uh, not forgetting the history of certain bilateral series has been catch up through COVID. And that caused a few issues. South African players, the Indian players, don't play domestic 50 over. No, good point. Sorry, they don't. So 
the argument about the hundred probably has somebody's agenda behind it first and foremost secondly it's too simplistic that's not necessarily the case we could have done without the odi series against ireland clearly we could have probably had a new zealand series out in and play in india that would have been quite good i think they went off to bangladesh to play so I think we were short of a bit of practice in Indian conditions, especially when one was rained off against India and the other game against Bangladesh was reduced to a much less game, almost, I think it was just above 20 overs. But so I, I'm, I'm probably going to say it's too simplistic with that argument about the 100. And honestly, I think we needed more practice in India. That might have done us a bit of good. But after an English season, some of our chaps with the Ashes and obviously there was a degree of the 100 and T20s and whatever, some of our lads were, were, were dead on their feet as well. One particular lad, I think, I think Sam Curran was tired, was, was ex extremely tired from the season. Yeah, he, he's he was, do play a lot of cricket actually. He, he he did feature a lot. I think you it's a good point about preparation because if you're going to go and play a World Cup in India, uh, playing an ODI series against New Zealand in the back end of September in England is not really acclimatizing yourself, is it? And probably without stating the obvious, that's to do with money because quite a, a number of the games that were sold out at Cardiff, Southampton, Oval Lords. So, you know. There's the agenda of money, making money, playing ODIs in your own home country. Um, that that can't be forgotten as well. The money is important, as we've seen, with the amount of money now being spent elsewhere following the ICEC report uh, with women's cricket levelling up. Um, money is tight. Uh, you know, we can say it's a wash. I'm afraid I don't think it is a wash. I think it's tight and there still is money to spend elsewhere. Yeah, I think there's a lot of money concentrated in certain areas with a lot of other stuff just being sidelined or ignored or, or, or whatever. Um, it is, it's a, uh, And there's the story this week about um, the Saudis investing $5 billion in the IPL, which I think is a very telling story. Well, I've, I was very lucky on tour for my four or five weeks, however long I was away. Um, you know, I'm very lucky. I know meant much of the squad. I know some of the administrators in this country and others. And I know many of the journalists who I thoroughly enjoy their company. I mean, you know, when you, the group of journalists that, uh, the national journalists, um, it's just great listening to them. I could spend hours just listening into their conversations. It, very intelligent lads, lasses, very intelligent. Um, and I, you know, way above my own station, I just enjoy <laughs> listening to them. But some suggest that the Saudis will get involved. You know, the Saudis are not about filling stadiums perhaps because they don't need to, because this is their hobby. They have the money they can afford to put on events, be it well, boxing recently yeah. with Fury, uh, football these days, not, you know, 
not they don't fill stadiums with with punters but it's you know they have the money to be able to do it some suggest that the saudis will perhaps go into bed with the ipl others in fact suggest they will have a conflict it could end up in tears they may do their own thing but if they do their own thing they will want all the top Indian players. And if the Indian players start walking away from the IPL, you know, that could oh, present a problem yeah. um, for, for the BCCI. So watch this space. I think that story will run and I think it will meander different ways. And it will be interesting to see whether the BCCI get into bed with them or it's something different and challenging to the BCCI's um, IPL. Going back to England, uh, and I think we all accept that the England white ball team, 50 over 10, whatever you want to call it, has come to the end of a cycle, as you said earlier on. There are certain players that it might have been a tour too far. Um, we've got a white ball tour to the Caribbean coming up. Uh, I say the Caribbean, but England tours don't really go to the Caribbean these days. Either. They go to Antigua, St. Lucia and Barbados because that's where British Airways fly. Nothing to do with money at all. But uh, we've got that this side of Christmas. And then after Christmas, it's back to India um, for a, uh, a full tour. And then there's a T20 World Cup next summer, which I think is going to disrupt our season. But um, it will. I'm just curious to see well, what you think about, are we going to see a brand new England? Are we going to see a brand new squad? Will there be a lot of changes on, on these various expeditions? I think... I think the selection meeting is about the 9th or 10th of November. And obviously we will have had, um, the, the, the lads will be about to come home, I think about that time. I think they come home about 13th, 14th. Now they're out of it. Um, the ODI series, which is the first three matches, two in Antigua, one in Barbados, I expect to see a very fresh, newish squad. One or two from the World Cup perhaps will be involved, but then they have five T20s. There's only nine T20s now until the World Cup in America and the West Indies. So there's five in the West Indies, one in Barbados, two in Grenada, two in Trinidad, and then four against Pakistan in mid-May, late, late-ish May. So I expect to see a mixture of new guys. I think some of the older, tired or injured chaps who have been on the ODI will miss out. I think they won't be picked. And it will be an interesting uh, selection meeting because which way do they go? Do they go with freshly peeled new players and a few of the younger uh, ODI players or uh, will there be pressure? Because Rob Keys announced it, announced these 29 contracts. That's an awkward selection meeting. Yeah. You know, are they going to pick the tried and tested, sadly who have failed, but to play T20? You know, some of our players picked for the ODIs are probably more successful T20 players than ODI players. Um, will we go that route or will we pick a new a new set of players for the T20? I think we'll pick new players, fresh players for the ODIs. 
But for the T20, I think it will be a mixture of a few with contracts and a few new ones. I can't see, obviously, Stokes isn't going to go. I mean, he's been half fit. Is Bearstow fit? Yeah. You know, or do you rest Mark Wood? Gus Atkinson's hopefully fit. He would go. Yeah. Maybe the likes of Crawley Duckett. I don't know. Hey, um, we've, we've just got to be a little bit honest here now. Um, the problem is, if you pick some of these older, out-of-form players, the difficulty is you're picking them probably because they've got a, a two-year, three-year contract. Yeah, that's right. Just seemed very Difficult strange one. to me, the timing of these contracts. I mean, um, it was, I don't know, to my... To my um, point of view, it should have been done after the the, the 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 World Cup was over, and that would have been a time to sort of sit down and work out who was worth what. But um, funny enough, go. so do I. But there seems to be—I don't know if the word is spooked—but nonetheless, the ECB, Rob Key, has announced these, and the question is, does he stick by them? Um, all will be revealed I think mid-November put your mouth where your money is (laughs) now go on go on and then then you've got the Indian test series you know everyone's giving mock stick at just at this moment Um, I'm I'm concerned that we're going to struggle Basball you know apparently it's in the dictionary now it is Basball is I'll be I'd probably put a, a heavy wager that Basball doesn't do its stuff in India after Christmas. No, no, it won't. Now, um, before I let you go, um, I was at a very uh, nice evening last week, and the uh, one of the the new things that John Stevenson started at Essex are members suppers, which are a gathering of. Uh, uh, the great and the good from amongst the membership to come and meet the CEO and various august people from uh, the boardroom and management of Essex. And uh, the guest speaker was an old mate of yours, Mr. J.K. Lever. Uh-huh. And in the Q&A, he spoke really glowing. It wasn't provoked, or so no one asked him about it, but he was just talking generally about left arms bowlers that he likes in the past and in the present. Uh, and the name Reese Topley came up, and he said that he loves watching Reese, and he really hopes that if he can stay injury free and his luck changes, because it's not all down to his poor body. I mean, he's had some awful luck, luck stepping on Toblerones and even the the incident against uh, Sri Lanka um, just recently. Um, you know, that's a regular fielding manoeuvre. But anyway, but J.K. said that he could see Reese going on to achieve really, really great things. And he has had a really good World Cup. In fact, this this last few months when he's been back in an England shirt, he has delivered the goods. He did. And I was extremely proud to be there. Um, I, going back to Reese's Essex days, um, and that's really very nice of JK to say that. And he knows his onions. He, he really does. Not just bowling, but left armers and things like that. Um, Reese's ceiling has always been high. 
Um, you know, you often come across cricketers and you look at this fella and he's got potential, but what's what's his, what, where's his ceiling? Where's the highest he can go? And not, not because he's my son, but as a cricket coach and a cricketer, I have rated Reese particularly high. And I know in the last few years, uh, last year, for the last, it's probably for the last two years, two and a half years, his ceiling has been high. And I know he's capable of being one of the world's best bowlers. He has height, he has enough pace, and he swings it, and he swings it late. And he has a great scene presentation as well. And importantly, he's got a big heart. So listen, yeah, uh, um, I hope he stays fit. I hope his career isn't defined um, in years to come by uh, plenty of injuries. He's he's gone through the mill with five stress fractures. He's got a 44-millimetre 44 pin through L4. You know, the, mentally, that's a, a big thing to overcome over the years as with the stress fractures. But he's just got this little broken finger. It's the finger in which he holds onto the ball. And right at the end, it's sort of shattered. Um, hopefully, he'll be available. Hopefully, he'll be picked. And hopefully, he will get enough overs under his belt, belt to maybe perform in the West Indies. But... Yeah, thanks to JK. Thank you for mentioning that. We're very proud of him. And he's still quite, you know, he's 29. He hasn't got the overs bold in him that a normal 29-year-old. So if he wants to, he has the opportunity and perhaps the desire to play a little bit longer because he hasn't bowled the overs. So good luck to him if he wants to. Well, we're all rooting for him. We always have done. Um, he's, uh, he's a credit to you. And Julia, and um, just an example to any youngsters out there that, you know, encounter setbacks, just look at the career of Reese Topley, um, who can basically redefine setbacks, but still comes, um, to, to quote Ian Dowie's phrase, bounce back ability, which was something else that made it into the Oxford English Dictionary. That's I love that word. I use that word often. I, With Reese, we often use going back to the bank of bounce back ability um yeah absolutely right bowlers you know batsmen they're happy if they're scoring runs and they get the occasional naught and maybe a bad dismissal but bowlers you know you often bowl without reward you can bowl well without any reward um but you know with injuries there's always an injury around the corner and i often look at young bowlers, young cricketers, and uh, if you haven't got a huge heart and if you're not prepared to keep coming back again and again and again, then you won't make it. Unfortunately, that's part of the DNA. You need that bounce-back ability. Massive. Well, we look forward to seeing Reese back in England, hopefully in the Caribbean, um, uh, if not very soon after. Don, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate your unwavering report of uh, support support of 98 not out always excellent content, always very very interesting and uh, and great to talk to you so i shall let you head back into the sunlit uplands of south suffolk where you can put your ray-bans on put the shorts on and uh sit in the garden with a cold beer well it's rather wet but i like the idea and i bid you a good night and thank you very much darren 
<laughs> Don Topley, many, many thanks, and we'll catch up soon.